Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the So You Think You Can Win a By-Election edition. I'm your host, Sarah O'Donnell, and I'm an editorial writer with the Journal. It's Thursday, July 3rd, and with me are some of the best in the business of political journalism. We've got provincial affairs reporter Miriam Ibrahim. Hello. Provincial affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. And columnist Paula Simons, fresh from her week off. Hello, Sarah, Graham, and Miriam. (laughs) (laughs) A bit later, uh, reporter Keith Jarine will join us too. So our three topics this week can be summed up by three words. Money, money, and meh. (laughs) We'll start with the update from Alberta Finance Minister Doug Horner, who gave his final report on how the province's book looked at the end of the 2013-14 fiscal year. Then Keith is going to pop by and tell us about the latest batch of uh, payouts, severance, we'll talk about what the right word is, to former Alberta Health Service executives. And finally, we'll talk about the week's federal by-elections, particularly how it played out in the riding of Fort McMurray-Athabasca, where far too many people just seem to go, meh. Nah. So let's go right to the numbers, because we love numbers. By law, the provincial government must provide a detailed accounting of Alberta's actual spending and revenue by June 30th every year. Finance Minister Doug Horner hit the deadline on the nose Monday. So if the 2013-14 fiscal year was a roller coaster, which is kind of how Graham Thompson described it, just where on the coaster did Alberta wrap up on March 31st, Miriam? Well, they say in the black. They say this is the first... Uh, surplus that is that they've been able to book in I believe six years there were six consecutive deficits Um, so you'll remember last year uh, the government tabled the um, austere budget one full of cuts to post-secondary sectors and other sectors because of the uh, so-called bitumen bubble uh, and the shortfall that they were going to be uh, faced with because of that and so there was a projected 1.97 billion dollar deficit But over the year, um, oil and gas revenues were up. The province collected more income tax than they expected, and they also uh, had higher investment returns, and so ended the year with a $755 million surplus. And so uh, that was sort of uh, presented as a a very good news story for the province considering the year and considering all of the cuts that were in the budget last year. Uh, so on the roller coaster, we're kind of at the peak, just really excited. We're not like screaming yet on the way down. Is that how you ha- <laughs> is that how you feel about it, Graham? Well, we are heading up. Absolutely, it's interesting. You know, the last year, the big story a year and a half ago with that budget was the six billion dollar, uh, as Marion mentioned, bitumen bubble, and they found six and a half billion dollars between then and now. Surprise! And, and, even yes. even with the flood, that's actually don't and, isn't that in amazing? Fact, in fact, in fact he the, said yeah. without the flood, that would have been a, a surplus in about the two billion dollar range. Is what uh, Finance Minister Doug Horner said on yeah. Monday. And uh, yeah, so I thought it was interesting. I wrote about this the other day there that um, this is the budget that created a lot of problems for Alison Redford. You know, she had to break her promise. She could not balance the budget. She began getting tough with public sector unions, began demanding wage freezes from teachers and doctors. We can't afford it. That sort of, uh, to me, led to her downfall when she began uh, declaring war on people who actually were, were supporting her for the leadership in the, the election. And then this sort of snowballed into this real problem for her. And it turns out at the end of the year, it's actually balanced. And this actually happened with uh, Stelmack as well. 2011, he was bringing in a $3 billion deficit budget, one that Ted Morton refused to deliver. He quit, sparking a leadership race. And it turned out when they counted the numbers at the end of the year, in 2011-12, became a balanced budget. So it's funny in, <laughs> in, a, in an odd way 
how they bring in budgets, create problems for themselves, and it turns out later on they got the figures so far out. But this is a classic problem for Alberta. They make predictions on oil and gas and things like this, and they get it completely wrong year after year after year. Yeah, so how do you feel about now that uh, having ridden this roller coaster, Paula, how do you feel about it? And do you believe the number... I, I, I mean, I think Doug Corner is a fairly straightforward guy, but do you actually believe his numbers do, do, when he tells us that there's a surplus? Do we believe him that well, there's a well, surplus? It, it depends what you're counting. I mean, because this is the same deficit that had lots and lots of deficit financing borrowing for long-term capital projects. Now, there are lots of good arguments that this is a good time to borrow. Def, you know, interest rates are at, at historic lows and that it makes more sense to borrow to build infrastructure. But there are certainly people who are going to say that the budget is not balanced. Leaving that issue aside, personally, as a kid, I've always hated roller coasters. And the way we budget in this province is completely bizarre. This kind of bipolar, uh, oh, wait, now we have money. Oh, now we don't have money. Now we have money. Now we don't have money. No sane government budgets this way. And this is, you know, yet more evidence, as though more were needed, that the way we run our province makes no sense. If you can't, if you constantly tie the budget to volatile resource revenues, you will never, ever, ever break this cycle. And, you know, this is my weekly time to say, wouldn't it be nice if we had a tax policy that allowed us to have stable, long-term financing for things, and then we could ride the ups and downs of resource revenues and make them only a part of the budget, or money that we put away in the Heritage Trust Fund. I mean, just think, suppose we had a progressive income oh, tax. Oh, Paula, we, I think we, we went all last week without anybody mentioning tax. that. Suppose we had you know, any kind of contemporary 21st century tax policy that would stop us from, you know, it's like it's like kids on a sugar rush up down. Mm -hmm. up, what would reporters down, write about up, though? Down. What was the reaction from both opposition parties? And I mean, we do have a leadership debate going on, so I imagine this provided some fodder for them. Groups like the Canadian Taxpayers Federation or the Wild Rose, their biggest concerns with the budget are the way that the numbers are presented. They they feel that the they say that the debt isn't being taken into consideration on the bottom line. And so when you talk about a $755 million surplus, you're not giving everybody the real picture. You're not telling everyone about the $8.7 million in um, capital and P3 debt that you've incurred. And, and so for them, when you offset those two things, it's not really a surplus. And as Paula said, the government argues that it makes more sense for them to keep their money in the bank earning better returns and then borrowing money at a lower interest rate and I you know I guess it just depends on sort of what side of the philosophical debate you fall there uh, other groups like the uh, NDP and the liberals also talked about the need for a more consistent revenue stream like a progressive tax system Ross Sherman talked about um, liberal leader Ross Sherman talked about the need for potentially a two percent uh, tax increase on the biggest corporations as a means of um, injecting some more revenue stable revenue into the province's budget so I mean it, it obviously depends on where you fall on the spectrum but there are a lot of different um, 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 ideas that were sort of circulating. And in terms of the PC leadership candidates, I have to say they were pretty quiet about the financials, but they have previously said, um, uh, you know, Jim Prentice has talked about the budget presentation and needing to make that more clear to people. So has Rick McIver. So it is obviously, it's sort of a wedge issue and it's one that people realize they need to sort of address head on. But, you know, it, it just, it allows them to 
This kind of budgeting allows them to move forward policy agendas under the guise of tax of spending cutting all the time. I mean, you think about the assault on post-secondary education in the last budget, and you think about what that did to Thomas Lukasik's reputation and Alison Redford's reputation, but they used the money issue as a way to further an ideological agenda. You know, oh, we have no money, so therefore we have to have Campus Alberta. Well, they want Campus Alberta, so the fact that they apparently have no money is the agenda item they use to move it forward. So and constantly in this province, you know, we have no money is code for, we want to do this, pretending we have no money gives us political cover to do something that would otherwise be politically unpalatable. No. And, and, and come I back thought to, about that. And they come back to, it can backfire on them as well. Mm. This is a government that was, they're to themselves, they keep telling us, they keep telling uh, voters, look, we can have it all. You can have uh, high spending, low taxes, and no deficit. And Klein began that mantra, and people now expect that. So anybody who says, I'm going to raise taxes or cut spending or change something is very unpopular because you get up the opposition, like the Wild Rose, saying, hey, you can have it all. Uh, very, very quickly, are there consequences of this surplus on for this current budget? Does it, does it mean we have lots of extra money in the bank, or where does it go? Okay, well, this body we're talking about was for last year's budget, 2013-14. Right. This year's budget, 2014, it projected to have a billion-dollar surplus, mm. which, based on their track record, would probably be a lot higher because it'll be heading Or lower. Well, we'll see. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking higher, but then what do you know? Well, um, I mean, as long as there's a caliphate declared in, in, yes, in Iraq and exactly. Syria, you know, as long as there's... It, more, yeah, yeah. More, more problems with the price of oil going up. Um, because we're heading into an election in 2016, and this is a government as well. These budget documents can be twisted. They're like a pretzel. They're not really uh, reality checks. It's what the government wants you to believe. And Paula's right, they, use, they play games all the time. So if they're heading into an election uh, a year and a half from now, uh, they'll want to present a budget next year that looks a lot rosier than we first saw. Okay, well, I see Keith Geraint at the door, so let's move to our next topic. Thanks for joining us, Keith. Glad to be here. Now, along with the annual financial reports that we talked about, every government branch delivers an annual report by June 30th, and I could not help overhear you yesterday doing <laughs> interviews as you read through one particular report. That was Alberta Health Services, right? That's right. And the more I listened, the more I thought, yeah, okay, one, I'm eavesdropping, but two, we have to talk about this story. So let's start with the basic facts. What did you find in the Alberta Health Services report that you found so interesting and I found so interesting that I had to eavesdrop about? Well, it was very interesting. So I was particularly interested in the section on executive compensation. And in most annual reports, that section is maybe a page long, maybe a half page of notes kind of explaining the numbers and the payments you see. This one for the 2013-14 year was several pages long. It, and because there was such a shakeup at Alberta Health Services last year with a lot of people changing jobs, changing titles, people coming in and out and so on. Um, and what we did find was some interesting uh, and I think questionable payments to a number of executives. So I can give you a couple of examples. Please do. Um, so people may remember back in uh, September, Alberta Health Services let go about five vice presidents. Well, that turned out to be a really expensive thing to do because some of these vice presidents, in fact, I think all of them, had pretty lucrative contracts that uh, provided some very big severance and big pension when they're dismissed. Um, so one guy, for example, Dr. David Megrin, uh, it turns out that he received severance of about $730,000 
plus a pension payment, a lump sum pension payment of about a million. So it cost us about 1.8 million. There was another guy, um, Bill Trafford. He opted to take monthly pension payments. He's getting $11,000 per month in pension for the next 10 years. That adds up to about 1.4 million plus 400,000 in severance. So there's another 1.8 million. So those were all due to contracts that had been signed previously. But there were some other sort of questionable deals that, that were made during the year. And one of them is uh, concerns a guy named Duncan Campbell. And he was the chief financial officer for a while last year. He got briefly promoted to acting CEO, lasted only a month in that job. And there was then, a bad tweet. There was a bad tweet about the, uh, the lab services deal in, oh, right. uh, in Edmonton. Oh, right. We talked about that. Yes, that's right. So... After he was removed as acting CEO, the idea was that he would go back and become the chief financial officer again. What turns out, and we only found this out once we read the report, is that he actually took a five-month leave of absence uh, up until March 31st of this year. So we paid him 425 in salary, um, but he only worked seven months of the year. Now, instead of letting him go, he's apparently got this new deal where he's going to go do a research project for AHS over the next year. They're paying him $500,000 to do that, plus $43,000 in relocation costs to move back to BC. Um, it may be very valuable work, but again, there was sort of uh, this was a deal that was reached um, before the new CEO, Vicki Kaminsky, came in, and she told me this is probably a deal she would not have done. So those are a few examples of some of the the um, the money changing hands at AHS last so, year. So are we effectively paying him a CEO salary to be a consultant? Yeah, that that appeared to be what was going on. He's actually known as an independent consultant for for AHS and for the Canadian Institute of Health Information. So how much of this information was public before? Very little of it. We knew certainly that uh, some of the executives um, had signed these very lucrative deals. Um, and this is just the first chance we've had to see some of the numbers. And we get to see them now because, um, because they got fired. So we know how much, how much pension they get and how much severance they get. Graham, Paula, is this just a, a cost of doing business and, and, and necessary, necessary for restructuring the healthcare system? Or uh, what, what, what do you, when you hear this, what do you think? The, the problem is that there have, there's been this long history of lucrative payouts of, of health executives. And every time it happens, you know, the health minister of the day says, this is an outrage and we're going to make sure this never happens again until it happens again six months later. So, I mean, it is true that Fred Horn, um, you know, restructured AHS. These vice presidents left. Maybe in the long term, AHS hypothetically runs leaner with five fewer vice presidents. And we're paying them once now instead of paying them lucrative salaries for years to do work that apparently wasn't necessary uh, if we can get rid of them. But $1.8 million. I don't know if in my entire working life I will ever earn aggregate $1.8 million. I mean, for most of us, we hear those numbers and we're so gobsmacked and so, frankly, envious that it's hard to imagine. It's a gift to the opposition. Uh, this goes was, to the yeah, as is going to cause waves again. Yeah, do you well, think? Thing, yeah, this is kind of thing as Paula points out. People can actually relate to this. You actually can see like eleven thousand dollars a month for ten years. Ten mm -hmm. years. Like, yeah, that number we, we can actually. Um, appreciate and be outraged by that because the person's actually quit the job as opposed to actually getting paid to do something. But also the, the Wild Rose especially. No, 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 they didn't quit. They, you know, they, uh, yes, <laughs> fair enough. We let yes. them go. They That's let them the go. problem. Exa yeah. Um, they're not doing the actual work and they're getting paid. 
But the Wild Rose, is, their campaign these days is to attack the government on competency, on issues like health care. Uh, the health care system isn't working. And attacking the government on perks and, and uh, overspending on things like uh, Redford's travel, this fits r- right into that idea that gets people upset about the government. Um, this is AHS. It's still at arm's length. I know from the government, but we all know it's part of the government. So this is the Not government. Not as arm's length as it used to be. Yes, <laughs> Fred Horn has very short arms. Ex- yeah. Uh, he's, he's a puppeteer on this one. So um, I think this is going to play badly for the government, going to play right into the uh, wheelhouse of the Wild Rose. Although, you know, it, it's interesting because the particular people that Keith has mentioned are not household names. People got a lot more upset when it was people like Stephen Duckett and Sheila Weatherall and Jack Davis who had had big outspoken public reputations. And so they were recognizable people. They were lightning rods for public discontent and people could be outraged that this person got this money. The, the people whose names Keith have just listed, unless, unless you really cover health politics, you're not going to know who any of those people are. They haven't they haven't had the public profile that made them targets. So I don't know if this is going to have as much traction as some of the previous payouts have had, although in aggregate, it's actually much more money. What well, not, I was going to say, though, it doesn't really matter if the names are well-known. If you say someone has been let go and they're paying $11,000 a month by this government, that's going to irk people. Mm-hmm. And it, does, it plays into this um, idea. This is a recurring theme that, as Paula pointed out, we see this again and again and again. He keeps saying, look, things will change now and they haven't changed. The, the problem for the government's going to be when actually when things actually do change and they quieten down and they stop paying all this money out, that will be a non-story. So the good news is going to be invisible. The bad news is very visible. And what did the new CEO say is going to happen going forward then? I mean, did she discuss, like, for example, as, as you mentioned, CAHS CEOs haven't exactly had a long lifespan recently. So, <laughs> like, what happens if she is, uh, you know, severed? Well, her contract is actually... Uh, seems to be a little more reasonable at this point. Um, she's certainly made the point that, that they have a new salary structure um, that she is a part of. Um, it's, it's based more on what's reasonable in the public sector. They say the, uh, the pension plan that, that some of these uh, older executives uh, were a part of has now been discontinued, although there's still a few people on the payroll that will get those payouts because they were part of the plan up until this year. Um, so, so we may still see a few more um, big payouts to come when some of the older executives depart. But for the most part, the AHS line right now and the line from for, uh, Health Minister Fred Horn is that everything's cleaned up. Uh, it's much more transparent. It's much more reasonable. I guess we'll leave it to the public to see if, if that's the case. Okay. Well, thanks so much for coming in to give us an update on this. No problem. Now, while health executive severance are certainly going to get people worked up, the same cannot be said of federal by-elections that took place on Monday. (laughs) Oh, that's a very nice segue. segue. We'll do this quickly because, you know, the by-elections, it's, like we said, meh. So, Miriam, can you give us a rundown on why Alberta was the site of two of four by-elections? Yes. um, There were two conservative um, MPs who resigned. Brian Jean in uh, Fort McMurray, Athabasca, and Ted Menzies. Ted Menzies in McLeod. Thank you very much. As you sort of alluded to, meh, nobody really cared about it. It was on the um, Monday, June 30th, the day before Canada Day, a, a weird semi-holiday Monday, not quite a holiday Monday, you know, 
middle of the summer many um, many people out of town on vacation people went away kids are out of school so um you know there wasn't there wasn't a ton of attention being paid to it up until maybe right on the and on the night of the vote who won who won <laughs> no one will be shocked to learn that the conservatives won in uh, alberta so we uh lost two conservatives with the resignations and gained two more so those seats stay blue that's right although the liberals did um in fort Mith- Fort McMurray, Athabasca really had a strong showing. Um, I think they nearly tripled their share of the popular vote, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And uh, the liberal candidate, I might not be pronouncing his name correctly. Hopefully he'll forgive me for that. Kyle Haritha? Haritha? Or or, or Haritha. There's a... Right. He he trailed uh, conservative David Yerdiga by only about 1,500 votes, which is, I think, pretty... um, is a pretty remarkable achievement for the Liberals in Fort McMurray, Athabasca, although they really did campaign quite hard there. Um, Justin Trudeau was there. He yeah, visited he was there tons. Three, three, times. three times. He was in, He also had sort of stepped up his presence in Alberta throughout that process as well. He'd visited Edmonton multiple times um, this year. He's been to, he, he went down to McLeod, in fact, and uh, and there was a big rally in Okotoks with him as well. So, I mean, they, they did really try hard to... Um, increase their profile here in the province yeah the voter turnout though i i'm you know this is my hometown basically my hometown i'm so sad about the voter turnout it was really bad wasn't it well 15 percent it's notoriously bad in fort mcmurray yes it is even on the, it the best of is. days it's probably one of the lowest turnouts in the entire has, province has, hasn't the, the globe and mail calculated even. that this is the lowest the turnout lowest ever any, in any canadian election oh, ever yeah, i That's think so, so sad and uh fort mcmurray though of course um it's interesting Liberals, they did do relatively well, absolutely. Then having said that, even when they have a low voter turnout with motivated liberals coming out to try and defeat the conservatives, even when there's a, an issue like the uh, temporary foreign workers playing yeah. against the government. And a Tory candidate who even, ran a very lackluster campaign. And uh, when you have a liberal who's, uh, they're both liberal and the conservative are very, um, they're, they're quite well known in the riding, they've got experience. Um, add a lot up and they still could not defeat the, the conservative. And uh, it must be disappointing for the liberals in that sense. But yeah, 15% uh, turnout is um, abysmally low. It's um, yeah. And, and you'd low. have to wonder, you might almost think that a federal government that scheduled a by-election for the Monday before Canada Day in the middle of what for many people was a long weekend, gosh, a cynic might wonder if the Harper government scheduled the by-election on that day to suppress voter turnout. But none of us are cynical here. No. So. But no. the thing is, so it didn't work for them. Uh, you know, they won two in Alberta, but of course they didn't gain anything in Ontario. That's uh, true. The Liberals won, of course, defeated the NDP in Trinity Spadina. Well, there's the election has happened. We, we now know. We know uh, w- while we feel meh about the election, <laughs> I feel like it's never meh when we go to good stuff from the gallery. You guys always <laughs> have such riveting fun reads for me okay <laughs> except for Graham who usually recommends some kind of report <laughs> yeah I mean and I always appreciate the suggestion but you are like the healthy you know Brussels sprouts our of our vegetables exactly okay but I'll give you some fine. Doritos okay I feel like I've totally like done you a disservice now so let's start with you <laughs> okay I'm really fine. excited to hear your pick this week it's from the Atlantic um, <laughs> magazine in June it's called Fire on the Mountain. It looks at the uh, last year, uh, last June, uh, there was 19 firefighters were killed in a forest fire uh, in Arizona. And this is a very detailed look at actually what happened to that, that, that forest fire. 
really interesting, actually, the details as to what actually happened to these, these guys. Still a bit of a mystery, actually, to what happened to the 19 who were killed. Um, but also, getting back to my theme of environmental issues, this looks at the, uh, the problem in Arizona, the U.S., and also Canada, is that um, we tend to fight forest fires, and, and that, in turn, uh, keeps all this uh, dead wood, literally, on the ground and forest. So we end up having bigger forest fires. With climate change, we're getting bigger and bigger and much more dangerous forest fires, not just in the U.S., but in Canada as well. So it's looking both at the issue, the, the drama of actually what actually happened to these firefighters, but also the bigger issue about are we um, tackling these forest fires properly. Okay, well, thanks for that suggestion. So it's from the Atlantic? At June edition, Atlantic is called Fire on the Mountain okay. by uh, Brian... Well, thank you. I'm excited to read something that has a narrative. (laughs) Um, I'm going to suggest something that uh, is in the New York Times magazine from last week. And this has to do with a bit of my personal interest as well. I know, boring, right? Um, It's called The Path of Most Resistance. And it is a profile of the former South Carolina governor, Mark Sanford. I used to live in South Carolina, so I follow South Carolina politics with some interest, who, of course, um, left office in a, in a scandal there and from his governor's role after uh, he was caught having an affair. He was fodder for late-night comedians for weeks and weeks, but now he's been uh, reborn politically as a junior congressman. So it's an interesting profile about how he's navigating his uh, new political life at the federal level in the United States. So it is a story about how you can, uh, you know, you can go on after a scandal. Born again. Yeah. So I recommend that in the New York Times Magazine. And again, it is called The Path of Most Resistance. Marion, what have you got? I have a short good read. Um, It's just, it's sort of like tweaked my interest a little bit. It's called Why Has Google Cast Me Into Oblivion? Uh, And it's a blog written by a BBC journalist, Robert Preston. Uh, He's the economics editor there. And many, probably I guess five years ago, he wrote a blog about a Merrill Lynch employee who had to leave. Um, And there has been recently a European court ruling that allows any member of the public to request Google take down a posting or a website or a page if the information is considered irrelevant or inaccurate in some fashion. Of course, when this came out, many people were concerned about how this could be used and manipulated by people who didn't want, you know, bad publicity about them. Uh, And so it's just a blog sort of detailing this cryptic email he gets from Google saying, we regret to inform you, we need to take this down, we've had a request, and he doesn't get to know who's requested it, which which piece of information is in question in the blog, but his argument is it's a piece of journalism that he wrote and that it should remain up because it's in the public interest. So it's a short little blog post, and there's lots of links there that will let you sort of explore the issue more deeply. Oh, that sounds like a good read. Thank you, Mariam. You're welcome. Paula, let's go to you for our last good stuff from the gallery. I have been reading in the last couple of weeks The Mint, which is an Indian business paper. It's a uh, partnership between the Wall Street Journal and the Hindustan Times. And the reason I've been reading The Mint is that one of my journalism school classmates from years ago is a columnist there. Her name is Namata Bandara, and she writes on feminist issues primarily. And she's had a couple of very strong pieces in the last few days. Uh, one about a prominent Indian MP who was caught on camera threatening to send rape gangs after the uh, female family members of his political rivals. Uh, Another, uh, a really beautiful profile about a very simple woman from India whose daughter was murdered for her dowry and who became the face of the anti-dowry movement in India. And profiles, and and a, a really fascinating series about 
sanitation in India and how the lack of appropriate sanitation is a feminist and an economic development issue. And so there, I mean, she's a wonderful writer. These are really compelling human stories, but I think they're also a really poignant reminder to me as a feminist journalist in the West uh, to understand how much further women in other countries still have to go to, to, you know, to have the basic rights, including, you know, the right to f clean running water and flush toilets that we here in the West take very much for granted. Well, thanks for that suggestion. Thanks, everyone, for your suggestions. Everyone, everyone, Graham. I appreciate them all. And thank you for listening. That's it for this week. You can find video excerpts of the show on edmontonjournal.com. And those are courtesy of our producer and videographer, Ryan Jackson. You can find the Press Gallery on SoundCloud and on Facebook and on iTunes where you can subscribe. And you can also subscribe on SoundCloud. We'll be back next week in the Press Gallery.